Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. You want me to kneel, huh? You want me to kneel? <laughs> I don't, I'm, I'm already taking a knee. I'm already on one knee. I don't think I'm I've a- ever told you this, but my entire childhood, I could not sing the national anthem or do the Pledge of Allegiance in school because growing up in the Nation of Islam when I was a kid in grammar school, that was like we were just instructed from day one, Man. you do not do it. That was my version of taking a knee before there ever was a Colin Kaepernick. Man, I'm with you. I'm Khalil Gibran Muhammad. I'm Ben Austin. We're two best friends. One black. One white. I'm a historian. And I'm a journalist. And this is Some of My Best Friends Are. Some of my best friends are athletes. (laughs) In this show, we wrestle with the challenges. And the absurdities. Of a deeply divided and unequal country. And today, we have the franchise player for Pushkin Industries on our show, the one and Mm. only Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell. Outliers coming inside with us. We are going to talk to him about sports and activism and how politics and athletics, they intersect. Let's get into it. Game time. That's right. Game time. Man, Malcolm, it is so amazing to have you on the podcast. We have been uh, we've been we've been thinking about this moment for for years now. Ah, oh, I'm very flattered. That's just that's just how old I am that <laughs> people can think about me for years. <laughs> we are obviously uh, excited to actually have you in house in studio today. Thank you. And and one of the things we wanted to talk about today is about athletes, sports, 
and politics. And, mm-hmm. and maybe a good way to start is your great podcast, The Legacy of Speed. And mm-hmm. it, it tells the story of the 1968 Olympic Games and the track stars, the, the sort of unlikely track stars from San Jose State. And maybe, maybe you could give us a quick synopsis of what happened in 1968 and the 1968 Olympics and why it's, it's so important for understanding sports and politics. Yeah, it's um, in 1968, the, you know, there, was, there were all these great college teams. Maybe the most iconic sports team of that era was the San Jose, San Jose State track team, um, coached by a guy named Bud Winter, who was this legendary sprint coach. And he takes this obscure commuter school because he has these new ideas about sprinting, but how to sprint, how to run fast. For a time, he has a track team which has not just the best sprinters in America, but the best sprinters in the world, like multiple world record holders on one team. Mm. And several members of that team are the ones who staged the famous protest in Mexico City. Um, and the, with a, we remember on the stand of the, of the 200 meters, uh, Tommy Smith um, and John uh, Carlos raised their clenched fists, right? It's that iconic photograph. Um, well, Tommy Smith and John Carlos were Bud Winter runners. They were members of that of that fabled track team, and so it's a it's this really fascinating um, moment in sports that has these incredible cultural ramifications. So, so black athletes, African American athletes, they they come in first and third in the two hundred. They're wearing black leather gloves and they raise their fists uh, above them. And it's it, like you said, it's one of the most iconic images in sports. Yeah. That's yeah. right. One of the things that in listening to the podcast and, and revisiting this moment is is really learning about Harry Edwards. I'd love for you to to say one more thing about Harry, Harry Edwards as someone who helped to make some of this possible. So Edwards is also a San Jose guy. He's a, a he's on a part of that same track team. He's a little older than the others, but um, he's the one. He sort of articulates a kind of philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, an ideology of sports. People thought about sports as a kind of pastime. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, 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 what sports are are a kind of reflection of uh, a society's deepest beliefs, of its values, of its, that uh, participating in sports can be as political an act as demonstrating in the streets. I mean, he was, he articulates a whole notion of sport as being something that's embedded in the mm-hmm. fabric of Society. You can study sport and learn about a society. No one that had not occurred to anyone before. As incredible as that sounds today. Yeah. So Harry Edwards goes and gets his PhD in sociology and becomes the kind of um, he's kind of the philosopher of this movement. And he's at the center. He was at the center of the 1968 um, protest. He's the yeah. guy who's behind the scenes, bringing these athletes together, trying to figure out what should our response be to you know the uh, does, an, does a black athlete um, have a responsibility to say something That's right. in face of the kind of not just racial oppression at home, but racial oppression around the world? And But then Harry Edwards goes on, and you can't find a political protest involving sports to this present day that doesn't have his fingerprints on it. I mean, he's this... Well, I, I, I want to unpack that moment and its legacy, particularly as Ben and I, like yourself, come of age. You know, we are... Primarily 70s babies, we become teenagers in the 1980s. And we're tennis kids. Uh, that, that was our childhood sport. In some ways, mm-hmm. that's how we met. 
uh, playing high school tennis together. And in, in, in sort of thinking about my own sense of like, who were sports heroes that had a political consciousness, um, we also grew up in the same neighborhood as Muhammad Ali. Wait, Muhammad Ali is living in Chicago? Or oh, Muhammad yeah. Ali yeah. owned a home uh, across the street. As you know, my great-grandfather's Elijah Muhammad. They lived on the same huh. block. Um, yeah. So yes. I didn't know that. I, yeah. I remember uh, seeing him outside the, the computer store where Khalil and I met. And you know his Parkinson's might have already began and he had these fists that were the size of like catcher's mitts. And he was just sort of fooling around. Everyone's like, hey champ, hey champ. And he would just like throw a jab <laughs> and it looked like a lightning flash. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, so we, you know, we have these personal encounters with these sports greats, and and perhaps none more significant at the intersection of 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 sports and politics than Muhammad Ali. Yeah, and by the time we are coming of age in in the eighties and nineties, it's just a completely different political time and a different political time for athletes, right? Like that made me think of Michael Jordan. So mm. we growing up in Chicago, we have the great fortune as sports fans to be like in middle school when Michael Jordan starts with the Bulls and to see him evolve into the greatest maybe athlete of all time. And you know, what a ridiculous thing to root for this team where like they're going to win all the time because they have this guy, you know, Superman. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, I've been doing all this work about this killing in 1992 where a seven-year-old is shot to death. And, and in the 90s, it's actually the highest murder rate in Chicago of all time. And, you know, crack epidemic is raging. Um, there's so much, there's this, this seven-year-old is killed and it's sort of like set into motion this conversation about what to do. And, and Michael Jordan, nobody on the Bulls, nobody says anything. I mean, there's not, and there's, I don't even think there's a demand to say anything. It's so far from the discourse of that time. You know, and Michael Jordan has this famous comment uh, right around then when there's a, a Senate race in North Carolina where he's from and, and there's an arch conservative running uh, against a black candidate. And he says, Republicans buy sneakers too, mm -hmm. meaning I'm not gonna say anything. And I like, yeah, maybe throw this back at you, Malcolm, um, you know, Thinking about the ways that the athletes and politics actually reflect their times, you know, rather than sort of shaping the times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We very rapidly go from an era where people are demanding of black athletes like Arthur Ashe or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or those sprinters in 68 or Muhammad Ali. They're demanding that they be kind of complicit in social change. And we, in the space of not a generation, I mean half a generation. Yeah. You get you get Jordan who who, you know, his his alignments are completely different. He's mm. and he's able to say, I mean, I think Charles Barkley, remember the the I am not a role model. I'm not a role model. He says, and yeah, where I mean, he, he he explicitly declines to take up that particular burden. And makes and both of them I think are making um a justifiable argument, which is in addition to all the other burdens I have to bear, why do I have to do this? Mm -hmm. I'm just an athlete. I, you know, I got a lot on my plate already, and you want me to battle these things that are bigger than me and outside myself. Do I agree with that? Not necessarily. I understand it, though. Yeah. And I also, it's funny because this has been. But but Malcolm, this... it's also it's corporatist. It's not just it's not just like my craft, right? I mean that the even even the Charles Barkley thing that he said was part of a Nike advertisement campaign. Mm -hmm. Like it's sort of like I got mine. Yeah, but I mean what they're asking is to be treated the same way a white athlete is treated. No one asked Peyton Manning to speak up against speak out against, you know, the, climate change or more yeah. than that. 
Peyton Manning is from New Orleans, a place with as serious of social problems as you can find in the United <laughs> States of America. I guarantee you no one has ever said to Peyton, how do you feel about the fact that New Orleans has got, you know, murder rates that are through the roof and dysfunctional, yeah. this and that? And so, like, if I'm a black athlete and I'm watching that, I, I sort of, you know, I have great sympathy for them who say, you know what, why... Why does Peyton get to walk? Why does Tom Bradley get to Tom Brady? Tom um, Tom Brady, Brady get to yep. you know he Tom Brady is rewarded more than that. He is deified for his singular focus on the game of football. They say of the man there are no distractions. The game you know and everything that's all about his greatness is summed up by his complete and utter devotion to football. When a black athlete does that, they're like, well, you know, you're ignoring your community. You're not speaking. You know. At a certain point, the double standard becomes intolerable for these guys. And Barkley, Barkley and Jordan are just saying, you know, F it. Like, I'm sick of this. And I, I, I sort of see where they're coming from. I, I do get the double standard. I'm with you a thousand percent on that. I think the difference is that Peyton Manny doesn't represent a community that's uh, metaphorically speaking, underwater in New Orleans. I mean, the, the country we live in is the presumption, this has been, I think, point about a corporate ethos, is that Brady's an extension of the franchise. He is the franchise. And the yeah. franchise makes its money by not pissing off its millions of fans. And so the only people who really have something to lose are the Black people who see this representative figure um, who has a platform and a voice to actually say something because people are literally dying in the streets. Yeah. I'm working on this book about uh, Los Angeles, um, black Los Angeles in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And Interesting. it's a kind of meta-biography of Tom Bradley. And mm. Bradley's part of this group of athletes that are at UCLA in the 30s, um, among them Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson is his classmate. Um, yeah. All these really interesting they're a very very small group of them and all of them face a version of this choice in their life in their in this in their case it's many of them are a couple of members of this group are olympians and their olympics is 36 do we go to the nazi olympics right same same question that we're revisiting in 68 just with different cast of characters and they're all asked to resolve this question of what is my what is the appropriate path i ought to take in the world um to express my anger at the way my people are being treated. And the thing that the idea that I'm most interested in is the mistake we make is, is in assuming there's only one path and there's multiple paths. And at the end of the day, you could, you can, we can look at someone like Michael Jordan 20 years out and we can say, did Michael actually do more for black America by playing the role he did? than if he had been outspoken. Not everyone has to be outspoken. If no one was outspoken, if not a single black person of, of cultural authority was saying anything in the 1990s um, about anything to do with racism, then I would say, Michael, you got a problem. But there are people who were saying stuff. And Michael was saying, I'm gonna try and make my case in a different way. I'm gonna confront whatever demons we're faced with as a people. Um, using my own strategy, which is to demonstrate that a black man can be the hardest working and smartest man on the basketball court. Malcolm, that's really interesting, this set of choices and using Michael Jordan as a kind of example. We know from 
Legacy of Speed that you have some ideas about this. So after the break, we want to hear more about these choices uh, and how they make a difference in the larger struggle for racial justice. We'll be right back after the break. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., that's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Welcome back to Some of My Best Friends Are. Today, our guest is Malcolm Gladwell. We are talking sports, politics, activism, and justice. And Malcolm, so you were just telling us about Mike, Michael Jordan's choices to, to be uh, the best and the hardest working basketball player in history, and that that feels to you like also a contribution to some form of politics. So talk to us a little bit about some of what you learned in your work on Legacy of Speed about the different choices that people have when it comes to trying to make a difference. Mm -hmm. So we've got we have three examples in the 68 games of how African-Americans 
chose to uh, chose to express their anger at the way uh, they were being treated in the way that you know black people around the world were being treated. One approach is the approach that was taken by people like Tommy Smith, which is we'll go and we will make a public protest in front of the entire world. So mm-hmm. we're we're not going to turn our back on the the institution of the Olympics as problematic and troubled and racist and whatever as it is. We'll go and make a stand when we're there. Second approach is what Kareem Abdul Jabbar does. And remember, Kareem doesn't go to Kareem would have won a gold medal Oops. if he'd gone. Boycotting. He boycotts. He stays home. Mm. Yeah. Right? The third approach is to go and just to behave like everyone else. Behave just Michael Jordan's approach. The Michael Jordan approach, right? Those are your options. Um, and, and and Malcolm, you cite in, in, in The Legacy of Speed, you cite a, a source for this, a book that has sort of presented these three three choices of oh, opposition. It's the fam- it's the it's the um the famous book by uh by the economist Albert O. Hirschman, one of my one of my favorite not just mine, many people's favorite thinker of the twentieth century is he writes a this brilliant book called Exit Voice and Loyalty, which mm-hmm. is really about this question. You have options. These are the three options that are available to you. You can go along with it. You can you can leave. You can you can if you don't like your public schools, you can give up and homeschool your kid or move to the suburbs. You can go to school board meetings and speak up and say I'm angry. Or you can just keep your mouth shut and hope things get better. Those are your choices, right? right? And there's a case to be made for all three choices at various points. Albert O. Hirschman happens to like what he calls voice. He thinks that going to the Olympics and speaking up is the right move. But he's not dismissive. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar made the wrong decision in 68. That was consistent with who he is. He's Hmm. someone who's deeply thoughtful and principled. And he personally could not square his participation in those games with his beliefs. And Although, although Malcolm, you, you, you kind of do make the case against it in a way in Legacy of Speed. Uh-huh. You remind us that none of us remember that he boycotted the 68 Olympics. Yeah, but he's, that I know. I'm, it, I'm, didn't, it wasn't lasting. It didn't yeah. make change. For him, like as an individual, it made sense. Mm-hmm. But in terms of affecting change, right? Like it's. But I don't think, who, I guess I would say to critique my own position in that, in that book. <laughs> <laughs> um, I now, I've rethought this actually since we okay. did Legacy of Speed. Interesting. In my new book, I'm much more sympathetic to those who make different choices than speaking up. Um, Kareem had gone to 68 and spent the rest of his life second-guessing his decision, then I think that would have been a tragedy. Uh, It's not who he is, right? Like, everyone has to be free. One of the things, one of the um, tragic things of the way we judge the angry and the dispossessed is not only do we judge them for being at the bottom, we also judge them for the ways in which they try to come up from the bottom. And we create this hierarchy of, uh, of options for them. And we say the noblest thing for the disadvantaged to do is to speak out bravely, right? Just to, hmm. And the least noble is for them to meekly go along, to be a kind of Uncle Tom. And my point is, that's, that's just as unfair as the old system. You can't judge people for how they choose to respond to everyone. Is, as long as someone is thoughtful about the decision they're trying to make, I am willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. I mean, this is this is a really interesting uh, dilemma, um, and I'm glad we're, we're talking through it. Uh, 
because uh, admittedly, um, I'm taken with Bill Roden's uh, provocative thesis in the book he wrote several years ago called $40 Million Slave, mm-hmm. which essentially tells the history of the commodification of black talent in sports, that mm-hmm. uh, black people for most of the history of the 20th century in competitive professional sports uh, have been used uh, for the purposes of creating wealth on behalf of the owners of these sports teams in, in every field of sports endeavor. And that at a certain point, their ability to use sports, say Jackie Robinson, to, to do something that transforms society um, is stymied in part because the financial rewards of shutting up and dribbling um, become so great that people no longer can attach any kind of social mission to their sports athleticism. Mm -hmm. And he sees this as a loss, despite what I think your bigger point is that some people um, are built to do a certain kind of thing well, even within a socially charged context. Michael Jordan may never actually have been the right person to be a spokesperson. I think that's probably right. And that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar found his voice outside of the arena eventually. And so maybe he needed to do his best there to create that space. I'm okay with that. But I do Mm. think that this other context is real and meaningful and that money matters in terms of the choices that athletes today make about their their politics. I was going to say, I wanted to go back to that comment I made about Michael Jordan setting a standard for being the hardest working and smartest guy on the court. And I don't think that's a trivial accomplishment. And I say this because I read, I was, I forgot where I read it. I was reading through some um, academic journals and I came across this study, brilliant study, in which they simply, they went through, I mean, thousands of hours of NCAA tournament basketball um, uh, announcing footage from announcers talking and just tried to, just did that thing, you know, and this has been done before, where they say, Mm. when we're talking about a black player's accomplishment. What are the what are the adjectives we use? And when we're talking Athletic about a white or, player, and it's like and and it's smart for a white player. It's smart yeah. for a white player, and it's athletic, and it's emotional for the black player. And I looked at that, and I say, you know what? We have such a long way to go, even now, and we fool ourselves that we're in this luxurious position now, where our athletes can we can ask our athletes to debate the fine points of legislation before the Congress. Mm. And I would say, you know what? In most cases, that is way fucking premature. Like, mm, yeah. there is an awful lot of room for someone like Jordan coming along and proving to a lot of people who are that who are carrying around some unexamined prejudices in their heart about what black people can or can't do, and proving to them that you know what, I am both the most physically talented person on the floor, but also the hardest working and also the smartest. And I wonder if that contribution isn't, in retrospect, incalculable. I'm going to put another spin on that, on that study which, and thinking about it, which in a, another read of that is that sports is inherently political, right? You can't mm-hmm. say that it's, it is like, you know, this pure just, you know, space where people compete and it's outside the realm of politics and sociology and all these other things. That if we're, even when we're, you know, you just described the, even, even the lens that people through see sports, it's racialized, it's politicized. And, you know, I think a lot about the Olympic games and sort of the idealization of, of human achievement, you know, excellence. And to think about that kind of excellence without thinking about 
all of our failings and hypocrisy. Like they go hand in hand, right? Mm -hmm. um, or, or, or I think about baseball. I sort of did writing about baseball earlier in my career and thinking about a kind of um, the gauzy way that, that baseball is imagined as sort of Americana. And you could only sort of see it as this kind of, um, uh, you know, pre-racialized past, like a lot of baseball literature to sort of escape racism, imagine something like, you know, like Shoeless Joe needs to imagine 1919 in some cornfields when it's not racialized. Um, it's so wrapped up in some idea of American exceptionalism and some dreamy idea of, of America that not, you know, it, it's, it contains all of its hypocrisies. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's like, it, you have to sort of start digging in there. What's absent? What, what has to be excluded? Yeah. Um, you, you can't see the two without, without, you know, without grappling with these, with these issues. I mean, and the whole thing is heightened by the fact that uh, 30 years ago, sports was just one of a number of different areas in which we conducted a national conversation. Now it is the only area. Right. Mm, that's interesting. It's the yeah. only mass. It's the only mass media phenomenon left. It's that in politics, mm. and politics mm. is like that's impossible. The only way we can have honest conversations, it strikes me about these things, is basically it's basketball and it's football. So it's like well, mm, I want there's enough. These <laughs> things are these things are freighted now. Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, transition to just talking about a contemporary moment, and particularly the NFL. Uh, and I have two things I want to bring up here. One is that just your point about the weight of racist stereotypes that still animate sports commentary in live sports today. Uh, we all just witnessed how the contest between the Philadelphia Eagles quarterback Jalen Hurts and Patrick Mahomes, the first two black quarterbacks to square off in the NFL, is itself part of this historical context that the role of the quarterback, we talked a lot about Brady, Peyton Manning, the mm -hmm. role of the quarterback has always been the brains of the team. And here for the first time in history, not because we watched it, but because we talked about it, because it was part of the story, because the media kept coming back to it. What does it mean that we now have these two outstanding uh, black quarterbacks uh, in the Super Bowl? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. Uh, no. So the the question the question is, was that another kind of watershed? Well, it's to your point. It's yeah. to your point about that media oh, analysis the study. In, yes, in, yes. in the study that we're that to confront. It, yeah. right. If we were some, if we were in some other version of America in the future, uh, this would not have been a media frame. Yes, uh, I think that's right. I think, but I perhaps think. the most famous black quarterback, which I think we should talk about, is Colin Kaepernick. Uh, in in light of more recent times around this question of sports mm -hmm. and activism, and, and, and one of the things that's crazy about Colin Kaepernick, I'm pretty sure this is true, that Harry Edwards, who advises the guys in 1968, also advises Colin Kaepernick. He's advising Colin Kaepernick in in 2016. Yeah. Like it's both inspiring and also like, man, is there only one like guy like this? Is it is like, yeah. is it really that little like actors and they going back to the same guy? Yeah, yeah. He's no, the Yoda he's, of, uh, is, of professional sports. Well, he's a Bay Area guy, so yeah, a lot of that is about that. Um, that well, there's several. You know, there's a friend of mine. I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of tacitly name drop. I have a very fancy finance friend who went to a. The height it's of not all Bernie this, Madoff, right? No, 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 no. <laughs> the height of all this was at some meeting with a number of NFL owners. And my friend is not a football fan, 
not, not even this, doesn't know the slightest thing. She's not even from this country. She comes back to me and she says, "Who is this guy, Kaepernick, Kepper, something?" Say, oh, she goes, oh, they were talking about him at this this event. It was like a you know a little reception, um, and she said the things they were the kind of she came back completely appalled by the kind of race racist language being used to describe this person who she'd never heard of. She didn't uh, mm. know a different, which I kind of always knew that NFL owners were bad in that mm. sense. Yeah. But that was like, okay, this is a completely un, this is a completely objective observer who's dropped into a, a candid situation with a bunch of owners. And they are, they are talking shit about Colin years after the whole thing. They can't oh, this get is over years him. later. This, this is, is not like two years ago. This is not 2017. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is two years ago. And they can't get over. They hate this guy, which wow. I had not. I have to say I was a little surprised. I didn't realize the extent to which there was a continuing animus towards him. Um, and and just, just to remind listeners that in 2016, in the wake of several police shootings of black men, Colin Kaepernick decides during the playing of the national anthem during a game to kneel, to, to not stand. And this is sort of triggers this this animus that you're describing. Yeah. And by the way, I mean, there's so many things that are nuts about the Colin Kaepernick thing in retrospect. It's not inherently disrespectful to the national anthem. To kneel is a respectful position. You're not on your cell phone. You're not like, <laughs> you're not listening to music. You're like, yeah. so like he's respecting the moment so much that he's using it to make what he believes to be an even more important statement. You know, I, I speaking of a friend who, who had this experience recently with the uh, racism of the NFL owners towards Kaepernick, um, in 2017, one of my students teaching at the Kennedy School, I, I have a lot of really influential students, and one of them was working for an owner and therefore made a recommendation that they talk to me. They're like, you know, my professor is a race whisperer. Maybe you guys can learn something mm -hmm. from him. You're going to be so, like like Harry Edwards Jr. <laughs> yeah. you're, a, you're a junior I'm, Harry well, Edwards. Well, that's, that's, um, this is my coming out moment. That's what I am revealing yeah. here. So uh, I you know, yeah. want to let you know that Harry Edwards is not the only game in town anymore. So I meet with um, about four people, all of them African-American men, and some are corporate, some are union, uh, but all of them are earnest and thoughtful. And what I tell them is essentially, how absurd is it that we wrap American patriotism and militarism into sports athletic contests in the first place? Mm -hmm. And secondarily, um, what does it mean for an employer to require this genuflection to American patriotism as a condition of work? And that the best option going forward uh, is to either remind everyone that it is not a requirement uh, to take a position that as an employer, um, while we have this tradition, it is not a condition of your employment, or to stop it altogether. Mm -hmm. uh, because as I said to them, I would never expect to go to my workplace, whether it's Harvard or some other uh, university or college, and as a matter of daily ritual, I have to uh, sing the national anthem. I mean, it's, it's actually absurd uh, mm -hmm. when you think about it. Of course, mm -hmm. it, it didn't actually happen that way, but what did happen was for a time, as we all know, there was some general acceptance that some players would kneel, some players wouldn't kneel, and they'd sort of ride out the storm. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with more from Malcolm Gladwell. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. 
This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., that's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Here's what I'd love to do with you guys, which is if you're Colin Kaepernick and you're doing it again, do you do it differently? I'm wondering whether did he, and I don't remember enough of the specifics of the case, but I'm wondering whether, is there a way he could have explained himself before he took any action that would have made his protest more meaningful and more widely and less divisive? Yeah. Is he- Can I go he, first? Yeah, go Yeah, you go ahead, Cleo. Uh, no, 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 and no. <laughs> I knew because, you were going to say that. Well, well it's, not, it's not just my own politics. Um, look, it was the early days of the Trump administration. And so everything we know now means that whatever we thought was the limits of white supremacist rhetoric, white nationalist mm. organizing, only metastasized since that moment. And at the end of the day, 
you know, what Trump was doing is like, fire that bastard and stoking up the, the, the political base was really just speaking to millions of NFL white fans, both mm -hmm. in, in the stadium and on television, who were feeling even more powerful and legitimate in their discomfort at best and hatred at worst towards Kaepernick. So yeah. I'm not sure there was any explanation that was a substantive, thoughtful, rich, factual, logical critique of policing that would have changed the outcome. Okay, second question for you, Khalil, since you're on a roll here. <laughs> Does it make a difference if Kaepernick's really good? Yes, I do think it makes a difference. I think it makes a difference later, not initially. I think he would have suffered the stigma of being... Uh, this radical, uh, bad for uh, the team's image, bad for the politics of sports and, and, and white America. But I think he would have gotten picked up uh, shortly after the dust settled, maybe a year, maybe two years. But if he was considered one of the top five quarterbacks in the NFL, I think he would have gotten a job. So if Patrick Mahomes takes a knee in 2023, what happens? <laughs> this is funny because this well, is a way that... First of all, he works for a team that does the racist fucking tomahawk chalk, uh, tomahawk <laughs> chalk. <Shop>. So, so, <laughs> so I, I think he might actually not make it out of the stadium alive. I mean, <laughs> to, to be consistent with his own with his own team and stadium's politics. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, yeah. the NFL has already affirmed, right? So that Roger Goodell, whether whether uh, truthfully or just performatively oh. said Colin Kaepernick was right. We yeah. should have backed him up on this. Yeah. So does that make a difference in 2023 amongst other owners and the politics today? Uh, it's hard to say. You know, you, you know Malcolm and Khalil, I, I've been thinking about this in terms of Drew Brees, the quarterback for the New Orleans Saints who recently retired because he was in the news because he spoke at the Republican congressional like gathering. Um, and, you know, thinking about like one man, I sort of always liked Drew Brees, you know, just as an idea. And if I had known this about him, you know, how would I have felt differently? Because we, I knew we were going to have this talk about athletes and politics and making a choice as an athlete of coming out for something is going to alienate a lot of people, no matter what, no matter which side you come out on. Um, so mm -hmm. his, his activism is actually on the conservative side. And then I was reminded that he spoke out after after Colin Kaepernick took a knee and initially he he came out and said you know you have to respect the flag i have parents who fought in grandparents who fought in world war 2 and he got all this backlash from fellow from his teammates yeah. and he came back out again and said listen i spoke to my teammates and they they corrected me you know they they kind of schooled me i learned something that idea that a community you imagine a team of people talking of different races and that there's they're kind of educating one another as, as a kind of I mean this is where sports is the metaphor for society you think about that as society where like people can make change in that way um I like that part of it yeah hmm. so the 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 Christian right historically stayed out of politics right they they didn't touch it and we this was something that in retrospect Lots and lots and lots of progressive types lauded. We thought that was good. And then they got super involved in politics. And there was all manner of hand-wringing and such from liberals who said, what are they doing to their religious 
purpose, their calling, their institutions, their legitimacy by mixing God with with uh, with mammon. And um, I'm wondering, so uh, if I was going to play um, uh, devil's advocate here, um, why wouldn't we think the same way about sports? What is wrong with mm-hmm. the assumption that something is lost when someone takes sports and mixes it with contemporary political issues? This is the slavery Avery argument, argument, right? <laughs> slavery Avery is the, the head of the Olympic Committee in 68, right? Who's American, well, who, who's so racist that he gets yeah, the nickname Slavery is, Avery. It is the Slavery Avery argument. Um, although I think that there's a, there's a way of doing this with, uh, with expressing it with more nuance, which is, um, so th- let me go back to the, this book I'm writing. One of the things I'm really interested in why Tom Bradley fascinates me is that Tom Bradley is someone who um, grows up in 1930s Los Angeles with a grievance mm. and essentially waits 50 years to express his grievance. Right? Mm. Super interesting. He basically hides it inside and says, okay, I could I could stand up and I could make a big fuss about this in 1944 in uh, on Central Avenue, but I'm never going to be elected mayor of Los Angeles if I'm doing that. I'm never even going to get out of Central Avenue if I'm doing that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hide it inside and I'm going to wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait until I think it's appropriate to speak up. Now, it turns out he waits until Rodney King to say anything. But the- And what's the specific grievance that he says? Remind us. His grievance is with the LAPD. Okay. Because he becomes a police officer, remember, and spends the first half of his career as a police officer. And I- you know, a lot of what we're doing is we're asking athletes, um, the issue is not whether athletes or people in positions of cultural prominence um, use that platform in one way or another for the good of their people or for society. I think everyone, we're all in agreement they should do that. The issue is when should they do it and how should they do it? And I, my, here's another of my little worries. One of my little worries is that we're way too focused on people speaking out immediately and not respectful enough of someone who might be playing the long game. Hmm. The one thing we let people in positions of privilege do is play the long game. The white guys get to play the long game, right? Hmm. They play the multi-generational game and everybody's fine with that. Black guy Hmm. stands up and wants to play a multi-generational game and everyone's like, oh, no, 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 you've betrayed your people. Why haven't you said something? And you're 23 years old. Like bullshit. Yeah, find find me a find me a privileged white person who is expected to speak out in a sophisticated political manner at the age of twenty three. It does not exist. What I love about this, Malcolm, is like my my love of MJ of Michael Jordan. He's about to come out. He's gonna sell. <laughs> he's he's gonna sell the Charlotte uh, team, and and he is he's a radical. He's gonna take no, his he's two, gonna come out. Take his two billion and give it to an HBCU, and it's the new Michael. It's the new Michael. <laughs> well, he's but, changing society. But two quick things. One, Malcolm, to you ask your question about the Christian right. Um, I actually reject the premise of the question. Um, religion has always hmm. saddled up to politics. Too. I just uh, want to throw and, it out there. Yeah, yeah. And so and so you know the social gospel tradition obviously is from the left position, but there's never not been a time when religious leaders didn't care about politics and speak to it as such. The other thing is you've now given me so much hope, so much anticipation, such a strong belief now that Sasha and Malia Obama are the generational change that we, that we want to see. 
that the yes we can of Barack oh, Hussein Obama of keeping that little angry black man that that uh, that Lucius alternate ego yeah. inside keeping that angry black man inside all this time even through all the shit of Donald Trump and the madness of this country it's still inside and what it's really about is his two daughters they're mm-hmm. going to talk about the long game the, the, they the are the multi generational multi generational this reminds me of something. I want to come back, harp on this point because I think it's a really important one. Uh, years ago, when I was doing my book Outliers, I had this fascinating conversation with someone who had studied the rise of Jewish lawyers, and he made this really hmm. interesting argument. He was like, "And it's the argument I make in the book, which is that was a three generation phenomenon. The immigrants came and worked in the garment industry. Their kids became merchants of one kind or another, and it was their kids who went to law school." Um, so it was three generations to go to a public city college kind of law school. Not it was four generations to go to the Ivy League schools, and his he was making this argument about about black people, and he was saying the mistake we make is when we judge the success of our interventions is we forget that even the even the Jewish community in America was a four generation phenomenon to get to the upper uh, uh, ranks of the of the. Um, of and this is white people, right? I mean, at a time when there actually were highly functional public institutions helping lower middle class white people get ahead. So it's like the deck was stacked in favor of that group, and it was still four generations. Um, and so let me give you another example. So I look at someone like Steph Curry, and I see, uh, well, Steph is it? Is it? We're at least we're. I don't know about his grandfather, but right, his at least his two. father, Dell, is like. A guy who made a fortune in the National Basketball League, who had every so Steph grows up with every advantage in the world, and what we're now seeing from him—that level of maturity and grace, and um, at, even at a very young age—is something that has that has got decades of roots to it, right? Mm. And maybe it's Steph's kids who are the mm. ones who run for public office and who make a difference, who have the benefit of two generations of. Um, and that's what it's again another reason why, and you, that thing you just mentioned about MJ is real. Why do we care? Why should MJ have to speak up at twenty five? I mean, I'll just say uh, there is room though for black conservatism. There is room for uh, individual notions of uh, capitalistic success, meaning that um, one way to interpret some of this behavior is that. I don't have a social obligation. My individual success is is accrues to me and me alone. Uh, and maybe at best, I do like the white guys do, which is to say, I'm going to give away a little money. Uh, it's going to be good for my reputation. Uh, but everyone else has to work just as hard as I do. Yeah. Uh, so, so I, I don't I don't want to overread Michael Jordan's um, choices here because the jury's still out. Yeah, right. I would add the phrase, right the words right now. I don't have a social obligation right now. Once you add right now, then it changes the whole kind of um, valence of the of his choice. Yeah. Hey, Malcolm, I want to I want to end with a kind of playful social experiment and, and sort of pose a question the way you were posing to us. <laughs> and and so, you know, even even the Colin Kaepernick energy and, yeah. and the NBA after George Floyd, you know, sort of embracing Black Lives Matter institutionally, which is a very different thing, maybe a fifth choice, you know, or it was sort of co-opted by the institution. But that that energy has has sort of waned. It's passed. 
And so we're in this moment right now, as you just said, like what's going on right now? And let's imagine like we're three smartish guys. Um, <laughs> if we could be a kind of Harry Edwards to, to a professional athlete right now, who would we pick? What would be the protest thing we would want them to do? And, you know, what cause? And why or, or wouldn't it be effective? Like, can we each sort of imagine one? Mm -hmm. And I could even start, you know, since you guys are just posing this to you one. now. I got one. <laughs> okay. So, so, so mine, mine is John Morant. Uh -huh. And I've been really fascinated by, by sort of, you know, he was suspended by the NBA because he flashed a gun. And, you know, rather than, rather than sort of criminalizing him, it was sort of addressed as kind of um, uh, a mental health issue and sort of a, an information issue that it's it sort of like, you know, the fetishizing of guns in the country. You actually have to sort of, you know, get some counseling about this. That seemed really kind of like productive in a way, like, like that, that they would counter sort of this, our culture around guns. Um, and I was like, man, what if this young athlete, this young superstar sort of took on the idea of, you know, of, of, of changing our gun culture? And it seems it seems like it wouldn't work because he would in the, all the ways that you just said, Malcolm, like this young twenty year old, the kind of like sophistication and and the time he would have to put into it away from his craft, which is 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 all encompassing. But it's like there is sort of this hopeless hopeful aspect in it. Mm -hmm. I like that actually. Yeah, I mean that mm -hmm. would be a, a productive. Uh, who's next? You are. You are. Yeah. All right. Yes. Here's mine. I want. Um, when the NBA's collective bargaining agreement runs out, I want LeBron to stand up and say, guys, we're done. Walk out of the room, start a new league. There's just no reason. You understand that like, there's nothing <laughs> tying all of these players to the owners. It's bullshit. It's complete bullshit. You have a group of owners who are profiting massively off this mm. game that they are basically doing almost nothing. To, I mean, in fact, they're probably actively thwarting it. So there's, you you don't think that if LeBron makes one phone call to his people at CAA over there and just say, okay, help me out here. Let's find some arenas. Let's, if 85% of the players opt out of the NBA, the NBA ceases to exist. Let's start our own franchises. Let's all take a piece of the action. Let's cut a new deal with the television networks. Like, could, can I, can I, I want to ask you this, Malcolm, because uh, you chose something that is not is is not necessarily fighting for larger social justice, but fighting for one's own labor rights. Does that do, I, I sort of in my mind, I make a distinction between those two. Yeah. Well, I'm going back to Khalil was mentioning William Roden's <laughs> book. So if yeah. that's yes. the problem. Yeah. Let's solve yeah. the problem. Yes. Not, yeah. LeBron could do it. As far as I can tell, there's certainly a, a lot more creativity and leadership and intelligence in the player community right now than in the owner community. So like, F it, let's go. Yeah. And, and in a way, by, by him being much older and more experienced, yeah. and even at the tail end of his career, it seems much more likely. They could have done it the last time the CBA was up a couple yeah. of years ago. I actually, Malcolm, I'm giving you big ups for that. I really like that suggestion. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think, I think taking back... You're the man. Think, you're the man to be the kind of like <laughs> in your new role as the as the the heir apparent Harry to Harry Edwards. Edwards. To yeah. Harry Edwards. That's that's. The, I'm gonna I'm gonna pass that on. Um, well, I think these are two fabulous suggestions, and two is good enough for now. Malcolm, we uh -oh. are. Oh. oh no, no, brother! It does not work like that. All right. Uh -uh. All right. All right. Nope. All right. Nope. So here's nope. here's mine. Here's mine. Here's mine. So I think Serena and Venus Williams should team up 
to fight, fight climate change on the basis of putting an end to unlabor uh, practices in the fashion industry or the fast fashion industry, which is to say that the extractive way in which we are producing a shit ton of clothes that are not meant to last, um, that are clogging up the earth's landfills, um, they have the platform, they have the capacity. Uh, I just think this is a really rich space for them uh, to own since they're already in the fashion industry and it could go a long way to dealing with some of the issues that are related to uh, fast fashion. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this was really terrific. Thanks so much, uh, Malcolm. We, we had a lot of fun talking to you today. I liked it. Thank you, Malcolm. Thanks, guys. Man, Khalil, it is so interesting that Malcolm is working on this book about Tom Bradley, Los Angeles' first black mayor, and that even that that book, that story, is related to our conversation about athletics and politics. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. M Malcolm in the podcast Legacy of Speed is obviously building this into a bigger story and this interesting framing about these choices that people make. Bradley obviously makes it. And so many of the people we talked about from Tommy Smith and others about exit, voice or loyalty. And yeah, I thinking love that about, framing. Yeah, yeah, thinking about the costs of voice, like when you stand up in, in protest. Yep, a Gladwellian move, a Gladwellian <laughs> move. Yeah, so so the, one of the things maybe we didn't talk a lot about was the cost, like when you do protests. And most people know about Colin Kaepernick. Right. He takes a knee, yep. there's, this, there's this backlash, and essentially doesn't really get to play in the NFL again. And, and he accuses, and many people, of the owners of colluding, so he's never signed. That's right. And of course, we learned something today, a little bit of breaking news about how the owners really feel about him. Yeah. Uh, but this isn't the first time, right? The long story uh, that we explore today also includes Tommy Smith and John Carlos. Yeah, yeah. Most people don't know about the cost of what happened to them for protesting. You know, so they're kicked out of the off the Olympic team. They're sent home, and for the rest of their careers, they they suffer financially. They 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 are not able to flourish, even though they're two of the best track stars ever in the history of track. That's right. And in fact, I mean, best I know, they actually don't ever have running careers past that point. Right. Uh, Tommy Smith goes on to do some coaching uh, much later on. And John Carlos, interesting enough, I met in Harlem many years ago, you know, who was sort of still telling the story. He had a, a memoir come out. Um, and we know, of course, what happened to Muhammad Ali. So, you know, there are real costs uh, to, to, to yeah. voice. Yeah, I was thinking too, you know, Malcolm says this thing to me earlier about, um, you know, do we expect too much of athletes? And, you know, mm. it got me thinking about all of us. Like, what do we expect from all of us, right? You know, in the face of injustice, whether we all have an obligation to say something, to yeah. do something. And yeah. that, that athletes, as their platform increases, whether, whether they can do even more, whether they have more obligation. And in some fundamental way, I still think yes. yes. And, you know, you know, he said about, you know, do we expect more from black athletes than white athletes? Maybe so. Um, I don't think that's right. But, but you know, in terms of what's going on in, in, in our country, it's, it sort of falls on black athletes more. Yeah. And I just have one final thought on this point. You know, when, a, when an athlete with a megaphone of platform, whether it's Michael Jordan or LeBron James uh, or Serena Williams, for that matter, uh, is not it chooses not to use voice. It sends a powerful political market signal that the issue is actually not important. And mm. people weaponize that silence to say, these other people are radicals and they're miseducating the public. This is not really an issue. So there are costs and real ones to how we move forward in this society. All right, so here's what we're gonna do. 
any athlete that you just named, MJ, Serena, anyone, we are going to give them a platform right here. They can come on our show and we will do this. The offer is out there in the world. That's right. An open invitation to some of my best friends are. All right. All right. Love you. Love you, man. Some of My Best Friends Are is a production of Pushkin Industries. The show is written and hosted by me, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, and my best friend, Ben Austin. This show is produced by Lucy Sullivan. It's edited by Sarah Nix with help from Keishel Williams. Our engineer is Amanda K. Wong, and our managing producer is Constanza Gallardo. At Pushkin, thanks to Letal Molad, Julia Barton, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, Greta Cohn, and Jacob Weisberg. Our theme song, Little Lily, is by fellow Chicagoan, the brilliant Avery R. Young, from his album Tubman. You definitely want to check out his music at his website, averyryoung.com. You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And if you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and a review. And listen, even if you don't like it, give it a five-star rating and a review. And please tell all of your best friends about it. Thank you. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today.